Hello and welcome to episode one of More Queer Nymphs. My name is Claire M. Coombe. I'm a queer feminist writer and freelance classicist and this is a podcast about nymphs. Well, nymphs and probably a few others who are also on the mythological margins between the divine and the human, disempowered through gender or sexuality, deprived of voice, or often viewed only through a narrow, patriarchal, heteronormative lens. I'm particularly interested in the way that the myths of nymphs and others like them serve as metaphors and useful ways of considering ideas about gender and sexuality in particular, and how they might speak to us today through those lenses. So mostly you can expect Greco-Roman stuff, but I will also delve into other world mythologies every now and then. I want to start with a content warning up front. Many of these stories contain themes of violence against women, sexual assault and rape. I choose to discuss them because I think they function as ever-relevant metaphors for the oppression and marginalisation manifested by the patriarchy. However, if these themes are triggering for you, I'm not going to be offended if you choose to listen to something else. So, this week's nymph is Daphne. Daphne's story is told and alluded to by many Greek and Roman writers, too many of them telling us about how she was loved by Apollo. Most famously, Ovid, perhaps our best and most controversial source for nymph myths, tells her story at length. So where do we begin? Well, not with Apollo, nor, I suggest, with Daphne's father, another common starting point. Let's start with Daphne. Daphne didn't want to marry. No big deal, you might say. Well, maybe not to us now, although I think it certainly is culturally for many. Uh, But also, as we'll see in later episodes, not that uncommon among nymphs either. But significant from the perspective of patriarchal antiquity, at least with respects to mortals, and commonly also significant among the gods, uh, we need to consider maybe Zeus and Hera, Aphrodite and Hephaestus, Hades and Persephone. Not happy marriages, maybe, but marriages nonetheless. So it is significant uh, that the nymphs seem to choose to opt out of marriage in many cases. Now, across those nymph myths, we see two variants on what it means for nymphs to exclude themselves from normative roles for women in the Greco-Roman worlds. On the one hand, we see sexual promiscuity among nymphs, a freedom not permitted among most mortal women in the ancient world, arguably not in the modern world as well. But in cases like Daphne's, we seem to see the preference for celibacy over marriage or indeed over heterosexual relationships. I think we can explore this through a number of lenses. Nymphs can serve for a metaphor for women who prefer the company of other women. In a patriarchal context, that doesn't explicitly suggest non-heterosexuality, though I would want to suggest that it should include it. I think ideas of asexuality, bisexuality, lesbianism and pansexuality can all find a place in these stories. However, in a wider culture in which men controlled women's bodies and their identities in multiple ways, choosing to pursue a liminal existence that largely excluded men, such as among the bands of women-only nymphs, 
does have considerable levels of appeal. I mean, Daphne, I would argue, exemplifies a very particular image of freedom. She runs. She's a runner. Now, some people might want to limit her act of running to the act of running away. But I think we should understand it as something wider. So women's exclusion from athletics and soldiery, with the exception perhaps of the Spartan women who come under criticism from other areas of Greece for their commitment to exercise, uh, helps us to see the inappropriateness of ancient women running. And yet Daphne runs fast. She runs well. I see in her a love of running. She runs alone in spite of the risks. And it sounds all too familiar for women who run in the modern day and the dangers they face in doing so. In most accounts of this myth, Daphne is a river nymph, the daughter of Penaeus or Ladon, who are both river gods. Yet in the story, we encounter her far from the river, taking pleasure in the open countryside, in her own company, in her running, perhaps symbolically separating herself from her father, who'd have had the power to marry her off to a man of his choosing. Now, in Ovid's account, we have to struggle through Daphne's father's expectations of his daughter. We're told that he often asked her for a son-in-law and grandchildren, which is an uncomfortably familiar narrative for many women who wish neither for husband nor children. By the time of our main story, Daphne has already shown her bold, independent spirit by persuading her father not to make her marry. But such a position doesn't free her from the predatory desires, perhaps expectations, of men. In Ovid's words, her beauty kept arguing against her prayer. A terrible precursor to claims that women's appearance is accountable for their likelihood to be raped. Somehow we see a similar thing in the implication that her rejection of men, combined with her beauty, makes her a more attractive prey to rapists. A counter reminder that rape is caused by the men who perpetuate it. Now, disappointingly, we do have to turn to Apollo, who will enter our story as Daphne's would-be rapist. Yet it's the prior events, at least in Ovid's account, that are of particular interest. Apollo is returning from his slaying of Python, a typical show of heroism. He uses his bow for the slaughter of a monster. Okay, monsters are another one of my favourite aspects of myths to explore. Um, I'm going to say the python myth is worthy of a short detour here. Uh, because monsters, like nymphs, are liminal beings. To python, uh, this monster is variously represented, but in some appearances is female. And in some is equated with echidna. We see this in art, um, Python as a serpent with a woman's head and breasts. I also think that one of the most fantastic witch characters, um, Seneca's Medea, calls upon Python in her incantations, strongly associating this creature with female power. So... We can associate Python with uh, issues of gender and hybridity, so part human, part animal. Um, that may well be thought of as other. That's to say the opposite of Apollo, 
the god who has his young, beautiful, heroic masculinity. Ordinary mortals adhering to societal codes offer a normative standard for behaviour, but there's another ideal here, the one that's embodied by male gods and heroes, whose model has been, frankly, really long-lasting in terms of its influence on patriarchal and unfoundedly, very unfoundedly, heteronormative standards. I'm going to say I'm also interested in to what extent Apollo slaying Python might provide a metaphor for humanity's attitude to the natural world. This is a bit of an aside, but it feels really relevant. Apollo in his anthropomorphic male form acts for a range of reasons in killing Python, depending on the account. Now, we have perhaps like the most justifiable reason um, in the Homeric Hymn to Apollo. Python is eating both sheep and human beings. But in others, we only hear that the people are afraid of Python, which just makes me think, yeah, people are always afraid of those on the margins. Now, furthermore, Python is a child of Gaia, the Earth. And so we're being offered a story in which heroism entails the slaughter of a product of nature rather than coexistence. So just a thought as climate crisis ravages our world by our own making. Okay, into our story comes Apollo, slayer of Python, restorer of order, because we must side with the people who fear the dragon. Killer of the other, the outsider, whether hybrid or of monstrous female gender. In return, Apollo is able to colonise the Delphic Oracle and claim it for his own. Doesn't this sound familiar? And the Pythian Games are set up in his honour. I feel this is another area on which we might reflect in light of how we now commemorate the past. So this sets up the story that Apollo, on his way back from Delphi, um, meets Eros. So Eros, son of Aphrodite, goddess of love, or Cupid to the Romans. And they essentially enter into a dick-swinging contest. So Apollo tells Eros to put down his bow because Eros is just a kid, whereas Apollo is the python slayer. But Eros wins the ultimate show of his virile power, penetrating Apollo with a phallic arrow, basically fucking him into falling for a woman. Worse still, Eros sets Daphne up as the victim. It strikes me as the perfect metaphor for how toxic masculinity contributes to the oppression of women. From this bit of banter, a laughable bro-down, Apollo is incited to assert his masculinity by proving his power over a woman. And of course, that woman is our nymph Daphne, outrunning, believing herself free, but never safe from predatory men. The predator-prey theme isn't avoided in the extended narrative of the myth in Ovid, but we are challenged by the humour he also intends to incorporate into his narrative. So Ovid begins with a typical example of the male gaze in ancient literature. Apollo sees Daphne's long hair and he wants to comb it. He sees her eyes and he thinks they shine, sees her lips and knows that gazing is not enough. Fucking hell, right. We're taken through the body parts he looks at. Fingers, hands, wrists, bare arms. 
and what he does not see he thinks is better according to Ovid it's just gross it's more than like appreciation it's fucking lecherous it's possessive yeah unpleasant Ovid also later says that Daphne becomes more beautiful when she's running away and that I think is the most invasive uh, predatory gaze upon her body so Daphne runs and Apollo chases trying to convince her that unlike a woman a woman a wolf with a lamb a lion after a deer an eagle with a dove he's not a predator the irony isn't lost on Ovid um later in the text Apollo is compared to a hound with a rabbit wearing his prey down we know that that's really what is going on here but worst of we see two other tropes in Ovid's account of Daphne's myth the first is Apollo's patriarchal protectiveness over Daphne he fears that she will be scratched by like briars or she will fall down even though a he is causing her to have to run away at all and b she's clearly a fucking fine runner a fast runner in her own right the second issue is the way Apollo claims that his status is enough for her to want him so he lists the places of which he is lord he says that his father is zeus king of the gods and he also mentions all the things that he is god of there are echoes here of wealthy young white men being let off rape charges whether in court or like by the judgment of the media because of their well-known families or the impact on their sporting careers or their academic successes there are many stories such as these in myth most particularly concerning nymphs but Daphne's is perhaps recounted most often because it provides the ideology the origin story for the laurel wreath that's worn by Apollo and is used as like a, a crown a marker of victory this is a really disappointing yet typical reductiveness of this interesting female character to a mere element of a man's story not least Apollo's yet the transformation of Daphne into the laurel is far worse even than this when eventually she's nearing the end of her strength Apollo has like almost grabbed her and finally she prays for help so in some accounts she prays to Gaia but in most she prays to her father like uh, in the end she has nowhere she can think of to turn except back to these known power structures and to her family it makes me think of many outsiders especially in the queer community um, who might turn to family in the mistaken belief that she'll be accepted I mean Daphne seems to trust that her father will accept her for who she is and how she's chosen for, to live and allow her to continue with that not be taken by Apollo but in fact his response simply retakes control of her it becomes yet another act of patriarchal control over a woman's body because in answer to her prayer for help Daphne is trapped forever inside a tree the bark encloses her but her mind is intact 
It's a horrific fate. I actually think of other stories of this kind of saving of women when I read this, perhaps those in the more quasi-historical vein as well. So for example, we have um, Virginia, famous Roman woman, um, who is killed by her father with a knife uh, rather than um, letting another man take her as a sex slave. And I have recently seen this entitled, like, Virginia's father saves her in a Latin textbook. And yeah, just says fucking everything, really. Anyway, there's a metaphor here for the punishment of women with blame when they're sexually assaulted. Not to mention, I think, also the claims that women should cover up to avoid rape. This is like the ultimate covering up, right? replacing her body with a tree trunk. It should also be noted that the transformation doesn't save Daphne from assault. Apollo still kisses her bark, still wrenches a branch from her to become his emblem, his laurel wreath. So her bodily autonomy has been taken first by her father and then by her attacker. So it could be hard to conclude with anything positive here except to say that we continue the fight. Daphne's story serves as a metaphor that tells many women's stories. Pursuit of her autonomy placed her on the margins. Her gender rendered her not only vulnerable, but disempowered because others laid claim to her body by false right. She needs to be remembered, her story needs to be told, for her commitment to her own sexuality and independence, her freedom from the patriarchy and her desire to claim her body in all its power and athleticism for her own. Thank you for listening. I'm Claire M. Coombe and this has been episode one of More Queer Nymphs. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this podcast, please do remember that there are people to whom you can talk. If you're in the UK, there is rapecrisis.org.uk and across the world there are charities who will listen. I hope that you'll join me again in two weeks' time when we'll be talking about our next nymph, Callisto. And in the meantime, if you want, you can follow More Queer Nymphs on social media at More Queer Nymphs on Twitter, on Facebook and on Instagram. And you can also follow me at Claire M. Coombe. So that's C-L-A-R-E-M for mongoose, C-O-O-M-B-E. You can find out more about my writing, including my myth retellings, at ClaireMCoombe.com. And you can buy my novel, Camilla, retelling the story of Camilla from Virgil's Aeneid, on Amazon as we speak. Look forward to seeing you again in two weeks' time. And in the meantime... Here's a short song all about Daphne.
Does